I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. We uh, continue our series through this uh, great letter of the Apostle Paul. Uh, It's been some time since we've been in it, maybe about five weeks or so, maybe even more. Uh, But we'll be back in Galatians chapter 2 and we'll be looking at verses 11 through 21. As you turn there, uh, just to give you a little bit of a recap, you remember that the Apostle Paul so far in this letter has been defending his apostleship and his gospel against those who were slandering him, against those who were accusing him of being a kind of second-rate apostle, and as one who had simply just received the message that he was proclaiming uh, from other men. Uh, But the Apostle Paul demonstrates that it was the Lord Jesus Christ himself who personally commissioned him, called him to be an apostle, gave him this message to declare to not just the Jews in Jerusalem, uh, but to the nations, all people indiscriminately, that salvation is found in Jesus Christ. This is the good news that uh, the Apostle Paul was called and commissioned by Christ himself to preach uh, to the nations, a message that has even come to our own ears, a message that has resounded throughout the earth and continues to do so, and one that in God's mercy we have come to hear and we have come to know Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul had summarized this good news, this gospel that he proclaimed uh, in the opening verses, which are very foundational for his whole letter, where he spoke in verse 1, if you just glance down there for a second, he spoke there of Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Foundation of the Apostle Paul's gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says elsewhere that if Christ isn't raised, then we of all people are most to be pitied. That the gospel we believe is just wishful thinking and there's no foundation. But if Christ has been raised, and he has, then this is truly good news. This is truly the defining act in history and what defines all things. For in his resurrection, Christ has conquered sin and death and he is raised unto, be, unto God in new creation. And he says also that not only Christ has been raised from the dead, but in his resurrection we have participated that we have died with Christ and we've been raised with him. So that verse 4 says, chapter 1, speaks of the Son and the Father giving him, saying, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Right. This is what the good news of the gospel has done. This is the good news that the Apostle Paul is defending here. And even further, as um, we look at in these other verses, verse 11 through 21 of chapter 2. All right, so a little bit of a recap, and we'll jump into the text here. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, and we'll read to the end. This is the holy and inspired word of God. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So far from God's word. I ask you to please keep your Bibles open as we consider uh, these verses together. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, for many of us, as we hear what the Apostles Paul teaching here, uh, it resonates deep in our bones, and it even pulls at our heartstrings. Right, to hear the Apostle Paul remind us of this great gospel truth, that it's not by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ that we are justified, made right with God, that, are, that, again, it resonates deep within us. Or to hear, as the Apostle Paul says um, in verse 20, speaking of Christ who loved me and gave himself for me, right? Withholding nothing but giving his whole self, dying for me and being raised for me, right? It pulls at our heartstrings because we recognize that what is most fundamental about ourselves, what, what is most basic to who we are, is our relationship with God. How I relate to God is the most foundational, significant thing in my life. And so when I hear you've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, apart from anything that you have done, but by believing in Jesus Christ, who loved you and gave himself for you, we, we, we hear that and we find peace for our souls. We find a foundation for our lives in which we can stand firm and secure, knowing that no matter what happens in this life, I am right with God. And so for some of us, that's how we hear this text. And if that is how we're hearing it, we're hearing it properly. That's what the Apostle Paul wanted us to hear. But if you were to preach this message, as we're doing today, into our modern society, a modern culture, these words of the Apostle Paul sound alien. Uh, they sound otherworldly. They don't sound really relevant at all. You see, what the Apostle Paul is working on, the assumption of, the kind of worldview that the Apostle Paul is beginning with, is the fact that our most basic need is to be right with God. To have a right standing before God. That, that the world is founded upon God himself, that everything revolves around him, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Our lives are to revolve around God, be oriented toward God. Our relationship with God is most important. But in our modern world, rather than God being at the center, we have tended to place the self at the center. Rather than needing to be right with God, first and foremost, Right? The, the cultural gospel is that you need to be right with yourself, first and foremost. And once you're right with yourself, then the rest of your life will fall into place. 
And so when we hear the Apostle Paul talk about being justified before God, right before God, righteous before God, we say, well, okay, that's kind of peripheral, that's secondary, which, but what really I need is to figure out how to become right with myself. David Wells, in his book, uh, The Courage to be Protestant, I would recommend uh, reading it, uh, he had said this, that it is time for us to recover our lost universe, right, the world that Paul is talking about. What we need to do is to think, once again, with an entirely different set of connections. The connections are not primarily in reference to self, but to God. The connections that have to be reforged in the moral world we actually inhabit, rather than the artificial world of appearances we have manufactured. And he goes on to say that it's no longer about right standing with God, as we tend to view today. Now it is about right standing with ourselves, and that is all it is about. It's about self-fulfillment, self-esteem, self-realization, self-expression. So, my point here is not to give a whole critique on this view of self, but I would ask you to enter into the world of Paul, enter into the way Paul understands the world, and to find and to think about the way Paul thinks about yourself as, being most, as having as most foundational your relationship with God, that the world centers around God, not self. And that when our relationship with the Lord is correct, when our relationship with God is right, it's then that I'm reconciled to myself. It's then that I'm reconciled to other people. It's then that, I, that everything else begins to fall into place. And so enter into Paul's way of thinking. And that's what we're going to seek to do today. And so three kind of main uh, movements to this sermon. First, Paul begins with a story when he had confronted Peter regarding uh, eating with the Gentiles. We'll talk about that. Uh, Secondly, the truth that was at stake, why did Paul confront? Why did this story even happen? So the story, the truth at stake. And then lastly, as Paul answers various um, objections and accusations that were made against him, against this truth of the gospel. So the story, the truth at stake, and then answering various objections. The first thing to recognize as we come into this story is that, as it says in verse 11, that Cephas came to Antioch, Paul opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. He stood condemned. Now, we're going to go on to explain why exactly Paul, uh, Peter stood condemned. But the first thing just to recognize, again, is that Paul's sphere of thinking here, the way Paul is, is working and thinking here, is in terms of judicial or legal terms. The idea of being condemned. And that this condemnation, being condemned in a sense by a judge, stands in contrast with what the Apostle Paul says throughout this, uh, this section here regarding being justified. Right? That's the, the, the greatest contrast Paul draws here is between those condemned by works of the law and those justified by faith in Christ. Those who seek to earn right standing with God through their obedience to the law, and those who recognize that right standing with God is only found not by my effort, but by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as a free gift. Paul is, is painting those two contrasts, and that contrast runs through this whole section here. Condemned or justified, works of the law or faith in Christ. Right? That's the basic divide in this um, passage here. And just to recognize that these are, in fact, uh, judicial legal terms, uh, these same words used for condemned and used for justified, in the Greek at least, also appear in the Greek Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 25. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to this one verse. 
Deuteronomy 25 says, if that, says that if there is a dispute between men and they come into court and the judges decide between them, well, what is the judge going to do? He's going to acquit the innocent or justify the righteous and condemn the guilty. Again, these, the same words that Paul uses in this section are used back there in Deuteronomy. They are legal terms, and they have to do with a sort of courtroom scene. And again, those, uh, the one who condemns, the judge who condemns, and the judge who justifies, again, it's not the self. It's not Paul saying, do not condemn yourself or, do not, or, or justify yourself. Again, the one who condemns, And the one who justifies is none other than the Lord. The one who condemns is the Lord. The one who justifies is the Lord. Whose courtroom has Paul brought us into? It's the courtroom of the Lord. It's the courtroom of God. And so, right, as Paul speaks of Peter as condemned, it wasn't just condemned in Paul's eyes. It wasn't just condemned according to his tradition or, or according to what Paul thought or the custom of the day. He's condemned in the sight of God because of his conduct. Ultimately because, as he says in verse 14, he saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That Paul, as he um, sees Peter, he knows that Peter, previously as they're in the city of Antioch, ate with Gentiles. Though the Old Testament law had forbidden that, it had given various dietary laws that they had to um, keep to. He had given various laws, clean cleanliness laws and unclean laws, in which Peter had to keep to. And so Peter, for a custom, for a time, was eating with the Gentiles, recognizing, having table fellowship with them, recognize that just as he is right before God, so too these Gentiles who don't observe these laws are also right with God. Because the foundational thing, again, was not law-keeping, but it was faith in Jesus Christ. Peter knew that. And yet, as it says here, these Jews from Jerusalem had come, from James. We don't know exactly what message they brought. Um, We can kind of speculate a little bit, but, you know, it's best probably not to. Um, We recognize they come with this message, and it leads Peter, who had once had table fellowship with these Gentiles, who didn't obey the law of Moses, but instead believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. But now, once they come with this message from Jerusalem, Peter now withdraws from them. He withdraws from table fellowship. And the Apostle Paul looks at that and says that you are actually contradicting your own message. You had said, and you yourself knew, that faith in Jesus Christ alone is what is sufficient for one to be right with God. And now you're requiring of these Gentiles, in a sense, to become like Jews because you've withdrawn from them. You're saying the only way I can have uh, table fellowship with them is if they become Jews themselves. They, they, They themselves submit themselves to the Mosaic law. That's why Paul says in verse 14, Before all of them, Paul says, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Right? He's saying um, that Peter's conduct, Peter's action, is actually saying a different message than the gospel that he had received. Peter's actions are saying, instead, that you need to submit to the law, you need to submit to the Mosaic economy, if you are to be right with God. 
Now, we can spend a a bit of time on this. Peter knew this because God revealed it to him in a dream. You could read this in Acts chapter 10. Peter himself ate with Gentiles before. You could read in Acts chapter 10 of him eating with uh, Cornelius. Um, a friend of mine would often refer to the dream that the Lord gave Peter as his bacon dream, right? He gets to, all of a sudden, what was once forbidden for him to eat, now the Lord says there's no longer any regu- uh, uh, restrictions on this. Previously, they couldn't eat um, these meats. Now it is um, available. And so Peter knew these things, but then under the pressure of these men, he withdraws. And in so doing, as Paul says in verse 13, he acted hypocritically. Said one thing, acted, and uh, lived differently, right? There's a contradiction in Peter's life. And so this is the basic story. Now, right, what's at stake specifically in the story has to do with very specific dietary laws from the Old Covenant. But it's important to recognize that when, when uh, Paul goes on to make his argument, he broadens his argument out from just these laws of diet, you know, diet and circumcision and various other things. He broadens it out to include all the works of the law. He speaks very broadly when he says, um, in verse 16, for example, when he speaks of the works of the law. It's a very broad statement, not just the dietary laws, not just the law of circumcision, but this, this sense of living under the law living under this economy and thinking that within the courtroom of God, law obedience will make it, will bring me very far. Thinking that within the courtroom of God, the law will be able to justify me. Paul saying the works of the law ultimately cannot do that. So that brings us to our second point, right? The truth that is at stake. Here's the story. There's conflict. Peter's living um, in uh, contradiction to the truth of the gospel. He's walking contrary to it. And the reason, again, the the basic truth at stake is what Paul tells us in verses 15 and 16. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And by that, he has in mind um, not not, uh, Gentiles in terms of their law of disobedience, but it was a typical designation of Gentiles. They didn't have the law. They didn't have something to regulate their lives. And so the Jews simply referred to them as sinners. They didn't have the law to guide them in obedience and in righteousness. And so uh, Paul's kind of adopting their language here for the sake of argument. And so he says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified, that is, made right with God, by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. All right, so Paul basically says the same point a few different ways here. And he wants to hammer the point home that the one who is justified before God, the one who is made right with God, is not one who trusts in his own works, but one who has faith in Jesus Christ. You know, that's, that's the truth of the gospel that is at stake here. And it's the truth of the gospel that always and continues to be at stake, right? Even in our own day, even in our own hearts at times. Or we can fall into this pattern of thinking that the only way that I'm right with God, the only way that I can be justified before God, 
is on the basis of my performance. And so when I fail or when I trip, when I fall, when I fall short of God's glory at times, um, I, I have a hard time getting myself back up. I have a hard time praying. I'll have a hard time going to God's word. I have a hard time singing loudly his praises on Sunday. Well, why? Well, those times, we often fall into this routine, this way of thinking, that I'm no longer right with God because of my performance, my obedience. Now, yes, when we fall, God calls us to ask for forgiveness, but he calls us to ask for forgiveness as our father. It's not as if we move out of this relationship, well, God's my father, now he's not. God's my father, now he's not. No, we ask for forgiveness on the basis of knowing that God is our heavenly father and that we have been justified before him, we've been right with him, that the guilt of our sin has been paid for and, and removed from us, not because we kept his law perfectly, but because we have believed in Jesus Christ. He is the one who has been given to me. He is the one who delivers me. Right? That's the, kind of the big point here, right? When you trust in the law and the works of the law, the law can never save you. The law can condemn you. You can receive the curse of the law. But the law can't deliver you. The law hasn't loved you. The law hasn't given him, himself for you whether written on stone or written on our hearts. Right? The, the law can't do what only Christ can. And so my relationship to the law is one of works, doing. And the law knows no mercy. The law knows no love. And the law certainly has not given itself as a sacrifice for you. Right? So, so I can't relate and, ha- and have my life principle be that which is in relationship to the law. Rather, my life principle needs to be my relationship to Christ, which is not defined by works, but by faith, trusting, believing. Faith is receiving and resting in the Lord Jesus Christ and his merits on my behalf. It's coming to relate to him, and the way I relate to Christ is not by works, but by faith, believing and trusting him who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. I I, I believe in Christ who loved me. I believe in Christ who gave himself for me. Right, so this is why Paul is so adamant and so con- convinced to, to, that he needs to confront Peter. Not because he feels slighted or he wants to show his bravado or his macho-ness in front of all the people that he can confront Peter. It's not a matter of arrogance. It's not about, a matter about Paul. It's a matter about this gospel. It's a matter about Christ. To call people back to the law and away from Christ Paul's saying you're you're, you're sending people away from the very one who has loved you, the very one who has given himself for you, withholding nothing back, but emptying himself, taking on the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of man, right? Humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? Not for fun, certainly, but for you, for his people, to save us from this present evil age, as Paul says. And so this is the truth that is at stake. Paul confronts Peter because of his love for the Lord, for Christ. And that's always at the heart of the Christian and the way in which we're to confront error and falsehoods. 
It's never a matter of feeling slighted or feeling like somebody dishonored us or disrespected us. But it's a matter of whether the name of Christ is at stake. That is our highest aim. That's our highest desire, even as the Apostle Paul demonstrates for us. You know, I've used this co- contrast before, but if you were to read Paul's letter to the Philippians, a much different tone uh, is, is seen there. Right? Paul is told, as he's in prison, that there's people uh, shaming his name, people who are preaching the gospel of Christ in order to, uh, to bring repute and, and, to, and to kind of shame Paul. And Paul's like, great, he's not about me. I'm sure I'm getting slandered. Sure, I'm, I'm getting thrown under the rug. Sure, I'm getting you know, pushed in front of the bus, whatever it might be. But the name of Christ is being preached, and praise God for that. But the, and so, therefore, he doesn't confront these people. But here, the Apostle Paul confronts Peter himself because the truth of the gospel was at stake. And that is what was Paul's highest aim, and that is to be what our highest aim is. Right? We can read the letter to the Galatians. Paul's very fiery. In some portions, he's very angry. He uses very strong language against his opponents. And the point is not for us simply just to adopt this language and then say, see, we, we were, we're justified in being bombastic and, 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 and being very uh, cold and very hard with the truth, right? What Paul is demonstrating for us here is not just somebody who's tough for the truth, but somebody who loves the Lord Jesus Christ more than anything. And that's what leads Paul, again, to defend the truth of the gospel against whoever might um, come against it. It's the one who has justified him. It's Jesus Christ himself who gave himself for Paul that Paul is uh, defending here. And so that's the truth that's at stake then. It's a truth that remains at stake today. And the answer always remains to be to follow Christ and to see his glory and his love, and his grace as greater uh, than anything else, and to defend that truth um, no matter the cost. So Paul states that principle, right? So we saw the story, and we looked at the truth that is at stake. And and lastly, Paul, in verses 17 through 21, uh, answers various objections that might be raised against this truth, that we are justified not by works and not by relating to the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Paul's answering various objections to it. Paul says that in verse 17, If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Right? It's often a question that is asked. Right? If we're justified by, by uh, Christ and by faith alone in him and not by works of the law, well, doesn't that make lawless people? Doesn't that make sinners of us all? And why don't we go on sinning that grace may abound? A common accusation that's raised against Paul. But Paul, as he often says and says here, certainly not. Certainly not. Paul's saying, yes, the law has no place in justifying you before God, but it doesn't make you lawless. Or the law has no place in the legal sphere of, of making you right with God. Faith alone does that. But it doesn't mean that God's will for us no longer guides us and leads us. No longer, it doesn't mean that we're no longer alive to God, but in fact... Being justified by God's grace and faith in Jesus Christ, we are now made alive to God. We're made alive to serve him, to love him. And so God's law specifically summarized for us in the Ten Commandments. Christ himself summarized that law as we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. 
The law still guides us and leads us, and now it becomes our delight to follow after it, not to justify us, not to make us right with God, but because we've been made alive. We're, we're new creations in Christ to follow after his will uh, for us. And so I don't simply just think of myself as justified, but I think of myself as justified and made alive to Christ. So it doesn't make me sinner to believe this gospel truth. Paul goes on to say, verse 18, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. Paul's point here, building, tearing down what he's talking about. Right, well, Peter, right, he had torn down the, the, the wall and the building of the gospel. But now by retreating from the Gentiles, again, from putting up, he's, he's reconstructing uh, this, this, this law, this wall, this building. And so Paul's saying to, to have torn down this wall and now to rebuild it, again, you're contradicting uh, this very truth. And in fact, the law itself was always intended to be torn down. That's what Paul's also saying. We'll say more about that um, in chapter 3. But the law was always meant to be torn down once Christ had come. Now that Christ has come, we don't rebuild or reconstruct, but instead we place our faith in Christ, and in doing so we are then made alive to God to serve him. Verse 20 goes on to say that I have been crucified with Christ, right? This, this bond of fellowship. I have, when I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm united to him. I share in his death. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The controlling principle and the orientation of Paul's life was no longer towards the law, but toward Christ. And so too for us, right? This passage sets our priorities straight, that Christ is the one whom our lives are to orient around, oriented toward. He's the one who leads us. His word is what guides us. This is what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ. No longer under the the mastery and slavery of the law, but under the freedom of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A theme that's going to come up again later uh, in Galatians, especially chapter 4. And so Paul says, speaking of himself, but then also speaking of himself as an example for all of us who have believed in Christ, we too can say, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, and Christ died for no purpose. Right, so Paul is teaching us very basic truths, but truths that, again, have a great impact on our lives. Let's come to a conclusion here. Right, our, our lives, when we try centering them around ourselves and we think and adopt the cultural narrative around us that we need to be right with ourselves first and foremost, right, we lose sight of what is most basic to who we are as made in the image of God created by God to know him, to love him, to serve him. You are an image bearer of God. And when you reflect the image of something other than God, then you're not going to find peace for your soul. You're not going to find rest. But when you come to know Christ, when you come to believe in him, it's then that you are made right with God. 
we find peace for our souls. Christ himself says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And that's what we find here in this good news that Paul proclaimed. A gospel that tells us that we are right with God, not by our performance, not by what we do, but solely by believing in Jesus Christ. And when we believe in Jesus Christ, we receive him and we rest in him. We find peace for our conscience. We find rest for our souls. And so as we think about, again, now definitely in conclusion here. I think I said in conclusion before. But in conclusion, right, we're coming to the Lord's table. And as we think about coming to the Lord's table, again, we remember that we're invited to this table not because we, or, you know, we've done great works this week. We don't come to the table with our good works in our hands asking for entrance. But rather we come to the Lord's table by faith receiving Jesus Christ. In fact, that's what the Lord's Supper testifies to us. It signifies and seals to us that we cannot nourish ourselves, but the true nourishment for our souls, the true nourishment for our lives, is only found when we partake of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and in the power of the Holy Spirit. We come boldly to the table of the Lord to receive from Christ, confident that we have trusted in him and that he alone grants us entrance to have fellowship with him, right? Paul, rather Peter, had drawn back from fellowship, but we gather together, not distinguishing ourselves from one another, right? Nobody here sits at a higher portion at the table. We're all equally justified before God today and forevermore because of what Jesus Christ has done. He has loved us. He has given himself for us. That is what the table points us to. And it calls us then to believe that message, to trust that message, and to go forth into this week living unto God, living for Christ and his glory and seeking first his kingdom. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for Christ. We ask, Lord, that we would look to him by faith uh, today and forevermore, walking according to what he has said and trusting that he is sufficient uh, to deliver us from all of our sins and to bring us into eternal glory. So, Father, we pray that this day, even as we come to the table, that we would have our lives, our hearts, our minds fixed upon Christ, who is our life, and that we would be nourished by him by faith. So strengthen us, Lord, we ask, by your grace, and may we stay close and ever hold fast to the truth of the gospel, that we are justified not by works of the law, but by faith in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.